So we're in this series, Free from Shame, and thought it would be fitting to end the series on Easter. So the title of this message is Victory Over Shame, and I'm hoping and praying that uh, if you've been with us over this series, you've been kind of collecting insights and understandings about shame and the nature of shame, and I would just say there's been three of us teaching this, and all of the talks are online. Um, If something piques your interest but you miss those, you can go online and listen to them. Um, We've talked about the sources of shame, the importance of acknowledging shame. We've talked uh, last week, uh, Jackie, our children's ministries director and discipleship coordinator, shared with us uh, a personal journey of shame that was very powerful, very authentic. And so uh, I encourage you to maybe uh, take a a listen to one or all of those. Um, But today we want to kind of wrap up this journey. Uh, We know it's going to be ongoing, but in terms of a preaching series, thought it'd be great to think about Jesus and his relationship to shame. And and you see it right there at the the Easter story, right? Because he's on his way to the cross. And the whole thing about the cross is it's filled with, with shame elements going to the cross. So it would be expected as Jesus was walking through on running his race on his way to the cross that people would be mocking him. That was just par for the course. And we see that in the crown of thorns that he was wearing, that was placed on his head. Uh, And then uh, to understand that he was taken outside of the city. And one of the things that we've talked about with respect to shame, one way that we experience shame is by experiencing being on the outside. And nobody experienced that like Jesus did to be cast out of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the center of of all of their worship. It's where God was. So to be cast out of Jerusalem was like to be cast away from the presence of God. And that's where Jesus' walk of shame takes him is to to be an outcast. In fact, no Roman citizen would ever be crucified in the way that Jesus was because to do so, no matter how bad that Roman citizen was, would be to cast shame on the empire of Rome just to have one of their own crucified. It was only reserved for those who were already, to some degree, on the outside. So Jesus knows shame. And as we, as we think about our own shame and the experience of shame and the healing of shame, Jesus is, he knows where you are, but he also, thankfully, this isn't the end of the story. The shame of Jesus and the cross is not the end of the story. That's what we celebrate at Easter. So he has the last say over shame in the resurrection. And it says in the text we're going to look at that he ends up being seated at the right hand of the Father, the place of honor, which is one of the opposites of shame, is to be honored. So Jesus knows the pathway, and he's going to take us this morning. Would you open up to Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2? Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. If you need a Bible, then I'm going to encourage you to raise your hand because we'll pass a Bible to you. Would love for you to be able to see the particular verses here. It's not a very long passage but it's a beautiful passage. In fact, every phrase in this passage is like round with, with meaning, pregnant with meaning. It is amazing. Uh, this, I wish I could do a whole series just on these two verses, and we could do one week on every phrase. But we're going to kind of put it all together, and particularly in, in, in light of our series, Free from Shame. So, yeah, if you need a Bible, continue to raise your hand. We'll get one to you. And it's on page 585 in that Bible that we hand out. Let me give you just a brief little background before I read the couple of verses that we're going to study together this morning. 
Um, this comes uh, right at the end of a very famous chapter, chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews, in which the writer of the book of Hebrews describes all the different kinds of people who lived by faith in the midst of uncertain circumstances. Does that sound familiar to anybody? People who lived by faith in the midst of uncertain circumstances. They had an idea, an inkling of the promise that God had in their lives, but they didn't get to see it fully realized. And so they were walking in faith. And they're an example to us. And what we need to understand in the reading of the next passage, the one that we're going to focus on today, is that the writer of the book of Hebrews then takes that group of people, those Old Testament saints who've lived by faith, and he uses a, a, a kind of an athletic metaphor to say, now in your life, it's as if all of those faithful saints are sitting in the stands and watching you and cheering you on now as you run your race. So keep that picture in your mind as we read the text that we're going to study today. Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2. Therefore, because everything I've just described, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What I hope we're going to get to this morning is this idea that Jesus teaches us about how we deal with shame. That ultimately, what we're called to do in his strength is to crucify our shame. And I have three steps I want to take for us to take there. We're going to talk about three things that we all have. We all have a race that we're in. We all have weight and sin, as the passage talked about. And we all have a beacon, something to look to, that will help us arrive at the end of the race. So let's think about, firstly, we all have a race. Uh, this race that we've each been given is set before us by the Lord. Each one has a unique race. So if we go back to uh, Hebrews 11, we see that each person was given kind of a unique life journey. That's what I mean by race, to run. One had to leave home, Abraham. One had to build an ark, Noah. One had to have a baby at age 90, Sarah, right? Uh, one had to offer up his son. One was hidden. Uh, one had to hide her son from Pharaoh. Uh, and then it goes on to say the others conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, stopped lions' mouths, were made strong out of weakness, and so what you see in Hebrews 11 is that each person is given a kind of a unique race to run. And that's true of us as well. We all have a journey. Recently, I uh, have a friend uh, who is dying of cancer. And his name's Brian, Brian Cole. He's the vice president of the group of churches that we're a part of. And he loves his job. In fact, if you look at the history of his life, everything has made him ready and equipped to do the job that he's been doing. And he, he's been doing an amazing job. And all of a sudden, he gets cancer. His race has changed, right? Now, he's got a deep walk with the Lord. And, and, and you, can, you know how much he loves, but I've been astounded at his response. He says, you know what? God's given me a new ministry. 
My ministry right now is to die well and to give God glory. Of course, praying that I'm going to get healed, but, um, but it looks like, you know, this is my ministry. Now imagine that. He went from doing the thing that he loves to do, a favorite thing, and now he's got a whole new ministry. And this is the way it sometimes happens with us. We don't get to define the race. God defines the race that we run. And sometimes the segments in the race are different. Anybody experience this? You had a vision for your life, and it went this direction. And something happened to completely change the way it's going. I was cycling with uh, a bunch of my friends yesterday, and we were on this road that was fairly flat, and all of a sudden the leader of the group decided to turn left. And turning left meant we were going to be going up a steep hill, and then a bunch of other hills. And the guy next to me let out an expletive because he didn't want to go that way. (laughs) He preferred the flat path, the straight path, which is right in front of us, right? But he didn't get to choose to stay with the group. He didn't get to choose the pace. He didn't get to choose the direction. And sometimes there's an element of life that's like that. We're given a race. We don't get to define it, but we're called upon to live it out. And that's what we have in the beginning of this text is that idea that each one of us has a race and God has assigned it. God has assigned the race that we've been given. We find that so often we're tempted to be ashamed of our race, the the life journey that we're on. And we can go into some deep holes about what did I do wrong to end up where I'm ending up. And of course, sin is a reality of life and we do make mistakes and there's consequences and all of that. Uh, But sometimes we're stuck in shame over that. And ultimately, that's not where God wants us to live. God wants us to allow shame to come in, but to propel us into repentance as is needed and to transformation as is needed, but never to live there. Shame is a vehicle that leads us to healing. It's not an address where you live all the time. We all have a race to run. And the amazing thing is, I don't know how God's doing this, but as we run our way race with the particular segments that it has, good and bad, hard and, and, and wonderful, there's this cloud of witnesses, those who've gone before us, who are in the stands, and they know what it's like because they've been there. And they're watching and they're cheering us on, as it were, this cloud of witnesses as we run our particular race. And somehow, God is weaving all of these stories into a beautiful tapestry that reflects his glory. And we can't see it. We can't see it all right now. But we know, we trust by faith that this is what God is doing because it's what he says in the scripture. That he's weaving all of these stories into a, a grand tapestry that will bring him glory, that will cause us to see how wonderful and good and beautiful God is. And we catch a glimpse of that on days like today and and some other special days. At the end of time, we're going to see in its fullness what God has been doing. And so many things that don't make sense will begin to make sense in light of what God has been doing. This is the race. This is the journey of faith. And we each have a unique one. And I want to encourage you today to embrace the race that you're running. The the hard parts and the wonderful parts. 
and to trust that God has, has set this out for you. And, and that because he assigned it, you're not going to be alone in it. He's with you. All right, so we all have a race, but we, we all have weight and sin also. Um, as we run this race, uh, we have these potential impediments. And I, I looked up the origin of the word impediment, and it really means shackle on your feet, a shackle on your feet. So if you try to run, well, with shackles on your feet, it doesn't go so well, does it? They're impediments to our running this race. And so I would like you to take out the chain that you were given on the way in. You take out the chain that you were given. If you didn't get a chain, we're going to pass out uh, to anybody who needs one. So just raise your hand. We'll, we'll get a chain to you. Yeah, well, it's good to hear the clanking of the chains because we're going to spend a minute talking about, we don't want anybody to not be in bondage here in this moment of the sermon. So make sure you have a chain. Um, if you need one, just raise your hand and we'll get one to you. So we all have these weights and we all have this sin that is like a shackle on the feet. Now, the word weight here in this text is kind of wide open. It really applies to anything that hinders us from running our race. So, I mean, sky's the limit, right, on the things that could hinder us. But I wanted to circle in on the idea of shame because certainly that's within the context of it. Shame is very powerful force in our lives and can cause us to have the real difficulty in running the race. And so how does that work? How does shame as a weight hinder us in running the race? Um, and a, a couple, of, a few things that I know that I experienced in my own life. Firstly, shame separates us from others. Have you ever experienced that when you come into contact with some dynamic about your life where you feel a great deal of shame, you want to hide? And that's what Adam and Eve, Eve did, right? When they, real, when they sinned, they realized what they'd done. They tried to hide because they were feeling shame. And that's the, that's the dynamic of shame. When we feel shame, we want to remove ourselves from community. The community is so important to, to all of us. We need community. And so shame, the weight of shame, the way that shame hinders us is by causing us to want to hide. Shame can steal our initiative. So you, uh, you, you try to get up in the morning, but when you're, you're heavily laden with shame, you just find you don't have the emotion and the motivation to do anything. In fact, what you really want to do is pull the covers back over your head and go back to sleep. Sometimes you do, uh, and, you, and you just wait uh, for it to go away, and it doesn't go away. Shame makes us mentally and emotionally distracted. Maybe you have experienced that person at work, or maybe you have been that person where some tragedy has happened in life, and it's associated with a measure of shame, and you're struggling to concentrate. You just can't concentrate. And every time you try to do something, you're distracted mentally and emotionally because it's a bit overwhelming what you're struggling with. And so we see people reacting to the shame in their lives. Sometimes they find it really hard to get out of bed. Sometimes they eat too much. Sometimes they exercise incessantly as a way to try to exercise the shame out of their lives. And all of this is connected to sin. The passage says that every weight and sin which clings so closely to us, those are the weights. Sin is simply defying God, choosing to do our own way. And that always trips us up because God made us and he knows what we're made for. And he's told us what we're made for in the scriptures. But we like to go our own way. We like to defy God. And that's what sin is. And once we trip, we get tripped up with sin, we usually catch other people in it as well. So if you've ever watched a race, 
seen them running around the track, and then one of them trips, and what happens? They usually fall into somebody else, right, and take the others out. And, and that's the weight of sin and the power of sin in our lives is to trip us up and to trip others up around us. And there's, there's, a, there's a whole connection. We talked about this in the Sources of Shame talk uh, several weeks back. There's a whole connection between sin and shame. It's almost like there are two cars, train cars, that are connected together. The, the sin can be the engine, and then the shame is the car that's attached to it that follows right along. You see that with, with Adam and Eve right at the beginning. When they sinned, shame came flooding in over them, and we see that to be the case. In fact, when we talked about the sources of shame, we identified three kinds. And, and, and I'm going here because those of you who weren't with us over this series... It's really important as we get to the victory over shame part that you begin to identify where your shame is. We all have it, but we need to, we need to acknowledge it. One of our talks was on the importance of acknowledging shame that Pastor Dante led us through. And so we got to dig just a little bit to, to make sure we're all beginning to identify where the shame resides in our lives. And there's three types of shame. Shame from what you did, so that, that's the example of, of when you sin, you immediately feel shame. Shame for what was done to you. So when somebody else acts in sin towards you, oftentimes the result is we, the victim, experience shame. And that seems totally unfair and totally unjust. And it is. But for some reason, it's the reality of life, of humanity. When we're the victims of other people's sin, we oftentimes experience shame, unfortunately. And then sometimes uh, the third shame is, is relating to something about you. So let me give you three quick examples. When we studied this, we looked at David, uh, King David from the Old Testament and his adultery. And so he felt shame afterwards because of something he did, right? Then we looked at uh, Tamar, who was close to the story of King David. Uh, she was raped by her half-brother. And so she experienced the shame of somebody else's sin against her. And then we looked at a man with an interesting name, Mephibosheth. But that name actually uh, is, the center of that is the word shame. And he had crippled feet. And so he experienced shame from something about him. So what you did, what was done to you, something about you. And the, the sources of shame are so manifold, so multifaceted. Um, you know, one of the things I've been learning in, as we've been on this journey these past five weeks is there are areas in my own life where I experienced shame that I, I had no idea were there. I just thought there was something funky. I didn't know what to call it. I didn't feel good, you know. But I'm coming to see in some of those areas it's connected to shame. Uh, so this is such a huge part of who we are as human beings. Um, shame can be wrapped up in our, our, our race. And then there's some cultures where shame and honor are more at the center of them. And so we have an experience of shame that's related to that. Shame can be wrapped up in our life stage, whether it be singleness. And we had a, a, an amazing testimony last week about that whether it be divorce or, or parenting. Um, shame can enter into our lives through all of those uh, doorways. 
Uh, then there's like gender expectations. You know, what does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a man? There are all kinds of expectations around those. And if we don't meet them, and none of us actually do, but we experience shame when we fail to live up to the standards that are sort of floating out there um, culturally and in and, and, and the community that's around us. And so what I'd like you to do is to pick up that chain. I hope it's still in your hands. To pick up this chain, and I'd like you to sort of pretend there's a phrase written on it that identifies your shame. So take a look at it, and, and let me just ask you, and, and maybe you need to call out to the Holy Spirit right now to help you see clearly. If you were to write your shame on this chain, what would you say? What words would you use? What would the phrase be? Or the one word? Imagine you're doing that and that these chains represent the bondage of shame that plagues uh, every single one of us in different ways. So, Hold on to that. We're going to do something with this chain in a little bit. Somebody was telling me that uh, this show, The Biggest Loser, you know, where you try to lose a lot of weight. After you've lost a lot of weight, they'll oftentimes ask you to do some sort of race where you're carrying the weight that you lost. So they'll give it back to you. And you have to run the race carrying what you've shed, right? And people are, they, they say, you know, how did I ever carry all that, right? Because now they're experiencing that, that different place. And, and I draw your attention to that because we're probably, most of us, carrying a weight of shame and sin that keeps us from running the race God has for us in the way that he intends. And my hope and my prayer is that as we go into this last point, there will be a letting go of some of that sin and that shame that weighs us down and keeps us in bondage like these chains represent. And so how does that happen? How does Jesus connect with our sin and our shame? And the phrase I'm using here is that we all have a beacon. And I really don't like the phrase because it doesn't capture enough. A beacon is a light or other visible object that serves as a guide to us. We all have a beacon that points us, that gives us direction. But it's, what I'm going to be talking about here is so much more than a beacon. Let me read to you again the passage starting in the second part of verse 1. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking... To Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So something about the shame thing has to do with us looking up to Jesus rather than around at the people and the cultural dynamics that cause us to experience shame. Something has to do with us keeping our eyes trained on the one who made us and redeemed us and letting 
him define us. Something about where we look and where our gaze is helps us to overcome shame. And then the beautiful thing that can happen is when the people of God begin to look at each other with the eyes of God, we become the hands and feet of God that help each other to overcome the shame. So this, this is why we decided today to put the, the setup in the round. Because as we begin to get the eyes of God and to look at each other with the grace of God, then we help each other to overcome those areas of shame that weigh us down and plague us. Now, how does this work out? Well, it says that Jesus is the author and the perfecter. Now, if we, you know, I would love to write a whole dissertation about Jesus being author and perfecter. It is so rich. There's so much there. But let me distill down uh, just a couple of concepts. First of all, he's our author. He's the author of our faith. What does that mean? One of the things it means, it means probably many things, but one of the key things it means is he has authored the way to God. Or if you want to say it, he's authored the way back to God. Okay? Ever since the Old Testament, sin has resulted in death and separation from God. And sin is dealt with in the Old Testament by sacrifices. So over and over again, animals are sacrificed, but they're never sufficient to deal with the sin problem. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and he offers himself as a once-for-all sufficient sacrifice. In fact, this is what the book of Hebrews is very much about. In chapter 10, verse 10, we, we read this, And by that will, the will of God, we have been sanctified, that is, made righteous, made acceptable in the presence of God, made fit for heaven. We've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So Jesus' sacrifice is once for all, and it's perfect, and it takes care of the sin problem. He is the author of our faith in that sense. But he's also the perfecter of our faith. Because he walks the path of faith perfectly and shows us how to do it. At least that's one key element in what it means that he is the perfecter. He runs the race and shows us how to run the race. He's our example. And in obedience, Jesus answered the call of God the Father on his life. And he ran that gauntlet through the streets of Jerusalem, being mocked all the way to get outside of Jerusalem onto the cross to suffer on the cross, taking the penalty of sin, which is death, into himself for all of us so that he could then be raised from the dead and God's power over sin and death could be demonstrated to the world. So he, because of the joy of what that meant, was able to endure all the mocking and the shame. And, and in that, we see the pathway forward with respect to our shame. Whatever sin is causing us to experience shame has been dealt with by Jesus on the cross. And, and anything that would cause us to still experience shame can be handled in the way that Jesus handled it on his way to the cross. And what did Jesus do on the way to the cross? It says in the text, he despised the shame. Now, I have a theory that most of us despise shame because it imprisons us. In other words, I know I hate my shame because of the way it makes me feel. 
And it makes me feel at times like, like I'm imprisoned by it. And that morning when you can't get up because you feel so ashamed or whatever, you know, whatever, however it works itself out in your life. So that's despising shame because shame has us in bondage. That's not, how, that's not what this verse means about Jesus. When Jesus despised the shame, it was to put the shame in its place. He didn't despise it because it had him imprisoned. He despised it because it didn't have him imprisoned. Because it was a nothing to him in comparison to the joy of the call of God upon him. And that's the posture that we are to take towards shame. So it's not too strong to say we're to hate our shame. We're to crucify our shame. We're to loathe our shame. That's how you deal with shame. When shame comes washing in, you rear up and you hate it. And you put it in its place. You treat it as a nothing like it really is because of the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, we think about the spiritual life as being sort of this nice thing, right? And it, it, the only way you can grow is by, by being nice and soft. There's some elements in the person of Jesus that are pretty tough. And this is one of them. When it comes to shame, he doesn't play nice. He despises it. He rejects it. He loathes it. And, and that's part of our spiritual journey as well. That's the call. There's a kind of a savagery to this, right? Where we, we look shame in the eye and say, you're a nothing. You, don't, you got no power over me anymore. And every time, it's going to keep coming after us, and every time we look at it and say, you are a nothing to me. I despise, I loathe you. You have no power over me. It's kind of a war paint spirituality, you know? You got to paint the, the face a little bit if you're going to deal with shame. You got to get spiritual Rambo. You got to go on the aggressive if you're going to deal with shame in the way that Jesus dealt with shame. I've been cycling a lot more again after a couple of years kind of being out of it. And with the group that I ride with, there's always these sprint sections. It'll usually be a sign out there or a, when we cross over a different city. And everybody knows when that happens, it's game on. You know, we're going to all go as hard as we can and see who can win. And I notice that as I'm coming up to those signs, I kind of got to get a little feisty inside, right? A little game on, a little, bit, a little bit of anger maybe to kind of bring out everything that needs to be brought out in that moment, to go full gas, to give everything that I have. And that's what I see in the story of Jesus. Jesus didn't sit down and be defined by shame. He reared up. He was a little chippy, maybe a little uh, pugnacious, or if we want to go on this, a little truculent. I'm amazed at how many words there are for this in the thesaurus. A little obstreperous, ornery, feisty. Which word works for you? This is how he was in the face of shame. And that's the call on our lives as well.
So this morning, because of what Jesus has done, and because of how he teaches us to disregard, to loathe, to count as nothing our shame, we want to give you a chance to sort of tangibly do that this morning. And so you have this chain. You have this chain, and what we're going to invite you to do during communion, and I know that imaginary uh, words are on this chain of your shame. We're going to invite you to bring this chain with you to the communion table. And what we want you to do is to take this chain and throw it into the bucket next to the communion table or throw it into the bucket that the kids are going to be holding at the communion table. And you're going to hear a clank. And as you hear the clanks going off throughout the room, I'd like you to kind of file that away. That sound of the clanking and the falling off of the chains an act of defiance, if you will, a a, a savage act of spirituality to cast aside the chain, the bondage of shame that has us imprisoned, but because of Jesus, doesn't have to stay that way. So on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And we celebrate this every Sunday. We celebrate it on Easter Sunday. We're going to go to the table. The tables are going to be in the back corners, so a little bit different than we normally do at the four corners of the room. And I want you to take your chain with you prayerfully and to cast it into the bucket before you take communion. And then as you take communion, be reminded that it was the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of Christ that made possible for you to get out from under the bondage that you're in. And and this is going to be a life process in many of our cases, but today is an important day for us where we are declaring Christ's victory over shame. Would you pray with me? And as I'm praying, you're going to hear uh, the sound of a drum. And the kids are going to come in and lead us in a chant. This is a defiant chant. And we are going to then join them. And then, as you feel led, step up to the communion table. And so, God, in this moment, Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak to our hearts. We ask that you would bring clarity where there's cloudiness. For people like me who have a hard time identifying the shame, but definitely experience its effects, would you in this moment bring great clarity that would result in the the beginning of a, a pathway of freedom? So Holy Spirit, you know each one of us. You know our individual lives. You know our experiences. You know where we're broken, where there's sin. You know where we've been victims of other people's sin. You know all the sense of shame that we have. And so we ask you, God, to show us, to reveal to us, so that you might then heal and demonstrate your victory over sin and guilt and shame in our lives, that we might become emblems of your grace and your mercy, emblems of the resurrection. This is our prayer this morning. And would you all stand up and join us as we begin to sing together. We pray this in Jesus' name. When you're ready, come to the communion table. It's going to be set out here in the next minutes.
as you get the song, start to join in with the singers, and we'll sing together. <laughs> 